welcome to the Awe and Wonder podcast. I'm Sarah Kinsella. And I'm Brenda Del Monte. And here we're joined by Jordan Carroll. And in this series, we're talking about cultural responsiveness. So we're excited to talk to Jordan about um, this topic. And Jordan's an SLP in the Atlanta area. And we know Jordan because we follow her on Instagram. <laughs> JRC underscore the SLP. Thank you for having me. Very excited to be here. Um, I'm Jordan Carroll. I am a school-based speech language pathologist. Uh, virtually right now, I work for a school preschool through 12th grade, um, which is great. Love it. And then I also do some private with, uh, I do virtual private as well. And then I do some home health. Um, so a good, good variety of things there. Um, I went to a predominantly white institution for undergrad. It was a small private school. And then I went to a historically black college, um, Howard University for grad school. And so I have like both of those experiences really just propel yeah. me to do what I do today. Um, and yeah, I think I'm, I'm very passionate about culture and cultural responsiveness and representation. So I'm glad that you all have me here today. Yeah, thanks. Well, let's just start off with that. What, what perspectives did you gain from going to both of those in institutions, predominantly white? Yeah, predominantly black. Definitely. Um, so I'm also, I'm from Southern California. I'm from the West Coast as well. And it was pretty diverse. And I had like a pretty strong community where I lived. And then I went to the University of Redlands was the private school um, for undergrad. And it was like the first time I experienced culture shock. Like it was it was very, it was just very white. I just, I hadn't, mm. I'd never experienced it before, but it's a private school. So it's very, like, it's really expensive. Um, and a lot of like kids that have been in private school their whole lives, like that's where they okay. attend, that kind of vibe. Um, I got a scholarship there to play basketball. And oh. um, so, which is why I ended up going. And it, at the time it actually was like number three in the country for communicative and sciences and disorders, the major. Um, okay. So I was like, well, this is perfect. No, nobody knew what an SLP was, but I knew I wanted to be an SLP already. <laughs> so I was like, okay, you know, I'll make this work. And everybody was really nice. And then it was just a really bad time to go because I was in undergrad when Donald Trump first started running for president and um, Trayvon Martin had just died. Like there was just racial tensions were very high. It was right. very high at the time. And um, I just, I had a really hard time. It was my first time experiencing overt racism. Um, I ended up founding, co-founding the first multicultural sorority on my campus. And mm. we just faced a lot of pushback um, and people were basically telling us that we don't belong there. And like people were spray painting the N-word on buildings that like some of us were staying in. Wow. So wow. yeah, it was a, it was a lot for it. Like I, I went to college at 17. I was like, maybe I was under 20. It was just a lot. Was this 2016? <laughs> yep. That would have been 2016. Okay. So yeah, that was, that was then. And really just understood what it meant to fight for something that was bigger than me and that I believed in and learned how to be an activist and learned how to advocate for myself and other people. So that's why I really appreciated that experience. Obviously it was very hard to right. go through at the time. Um, but uh, I learned so much about who I am and what I what I really want to do with myself in my life. And then I went to grad school and I knew I wanted the opposite experience. So I chose to go to an HBCU. And it was just like my first time where people 
knew me for who I was and not for being black or not for being um, an athlete. Like I was just Jordan. It was the first time in my mm-hmm. life I was just Jordan. That's how it felt. Um, and people like told me I would I would be a good SLP because of who I am and because of how I wear my hair and because of my personality and not in spite of those things. Right. Um, so that's when I just really learned like, wow, representation changed the game for me. Like I'm learning from people that look like me, um, that like share my culture, listen to the same music. Um, my cohort, we all like share those same things as well. And I never experienced anything like it. And it's just like, wow, I really want to, do, I want other people to feel this way. Um, I don't mm-hmm. want other people to feel like, before I went to Howard, I didn't even know, I never seen a black speech pathologist, like didn't mm-hmm. even know we existed. So that's why I actually started my social media. I was like, let me just be a face so people can see that we are here. Right. Um, And, you know, it turned into what it is today. But that's why I started it. (laughs) That's yeah, that's that's really interesting. I think you posted something about how many black speech pathologists there are. What? What was that? right? Yes. No, you're right. The percentage is very small. So actually, in undergrad, at the time that I went there, my school was 3% Black, and that's what I thought was just the school. But the field is also 3% Black. It has been 3% or less than 4%. It's like 3 point something now. But it's been mm-hmm. under 4% the entirety, like, <laughs> as long as speech pathology has existed. It has never wow. surpassed that. Um, so less than 4%. And I remember the day that I learned that at Howard, because we were, it was like one of those times in the semester where you're just tired and you didn't feel like doing any work and your professor's like, come on, you guys need to get it together. Um, so we were having one of those talks and she made us all open up our um, laptops and go into Asha's demographics and see the percentage for ourselves and like seeing that 3% as a grad student and her like telling us, you you guys are it, like you are the black SLPs in this room, you are a huge number, <laughs> like yeah. you guys need to get it together, like this is not a joke. And from that moment on, I was like, oh yeah, like this is, this is serious, you know, so mm-hmm. definitely changed my perspective. Why do you think it's that low? Great question. I think there's a lot of reasons. Um, Number one, the first one being access. I think like most people don't know what speech pathology is Mm -hmm. as a whole, like in general. Mm -hmm. So then when you go into like the black communities who are already underserved, who have likely never seen an SLP before, there's no way for people to tell you to be that. So I think that's one. Um, second is financial barriers. Like it costs so much money um, mm-hmm. to become an SLP or yes. a lot of money or a lot of debt. You know, most SLPs programs, when you go, you are in the program the whole time. It's not like yeah. you know, your job and that often. Exactly. Um, yeah, it's full time. Um, and I, there's not a lot of the non-traditional programs, which I think would make a huge difference if somebody could go to school part time and work and provide for the people that they need to provide for. Because a lot of times that's the case. Like a lot of people can't go to school full time because they have to make money. Um, and even in my cohort, we were really small, but all 12 of us had a job, which was like unheard of. But right. like all 12 of us had to make money. Like we were all supporting ourselves. Oh, um, right. So we were, all of us were exhausted. And it's really, you know, it's nice to be able to go through that together and like have people that are going through that with you. Right. But it's it's ridiculous. Like those two years were extremely hard because you had to work and you had clinic and then you were in grad school and then you had like all these different things going on. Um, so I think those are really big barriers to that. Jordan, so 
you know, you said most, a lot of us don't even, you know, most people don't know what SLPs do or, or even what the acronym stands for. And so you were leaving high school knowing you wanted to be an SLP. So just give us a little background about how did you know that if, if the representation was so poor? Yes. Great follow-up question. And that's another point that I make all the time is I think every single Black SLP that I know is only in the field because they have a family member who's in either education or healthcare. One of like the only two places where you'll actually hear about what an SLP is. I'm lucky that both of my parents were special educators. So I grew mm -hmm. up in my mom's classroom. I knew I wanted to be an SLP since I was like nine when I saw her go into my mom's class and she sat at her like little horseshoe table mm -hmm. and brought out all the toys and all the kids ran up to her. And then in 30 minutes, she got to get up and leave. And I was like, that looks perfect. <laughs> I would love to do that. <laughs> I knew very early and my parents, they definitely, you know, kept pushing me to it because they always told me like you, you need to be autonomous. You don't like to listen to people. And I'm like, that that makes sense. So this just worked out for me. I've always loved language. I love words. Um, I think people take the ability to communicate, the ability to communicate for granted. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think about that. I've always thought about that. Like since I was a kid, it's so cool that I can think of a thought and say it and somebody else will understand what I'm thinking. Mm -hmm. Like People don't understand how much it takes to make that happen because it's something that we do mm -hmm. consistently every single day. But as we know, there's a lot that goes on right. <laughs> to make that mm -hmm. a thing. Right. <laughs> so when you were at Howard, it, for your for your grad program, that's a lot about assessment. Um, and so we know that standardized tests are um, biased, just inherently biased. So how did they handle talking to you guys about assessment and in standardized tests and the value of, um, you know, other ways to evaluate. Yeah, we talked a lot about dynamic assessment, um, which I'm really grateful for because I know that a lot of people don't get that. Um, mm -hmm. So we, like I learned, I had to learn how to do an assessment without a standardized test. Like I had to learn how to use the materials in somebody's home and come out with some type of information about what's going on right. um, with that child. So just being able to, do that and be able to, you know, be dynamic in my assessment and say, okay, this is what they are able to do. This is where they needed support to do something. And this is a skill that they are not yet able, you know, to do on their own or independently. So right. I was able to do that, you know, since grad school, I've been doing that. So I think that was, uh, that's been really helpful in being able to go from that to implementing, of course, standardized assessments, but also being able to analyze what I'm getting from those standardized assessments mm -hmm. um, and what that information actually means and how to use that information that I'm getting and into therapy. Like, cause there's, mm -hmm. there's a lot of different steps that goes into that. Like, okay, you get the information from the standard assessment, but then what, what do you do with it? Cause I'm right. not just creating goals based off what's here. Um, right. And so then another thing that we talked a lot about is bringing the whole family in, including them into what our goals will be for therapy. So mm -hmm. that means going over the assessment with them, um, breaking that down so that they understand what I'm talking about, mm -hmm. um, making sure that I'm using language that they can understand and that um, I'm checking for understanding as I'm going through it. And then talking about like, okay, what do you want them to be able to do? Do you need them to be able to just go pick something up because they're not able to follow one step direction? And then what, what directions are they able to follow 
what vocabulary are they using or are they able to understand and what do you need them to do what do you want them or for them in at home what do you want for them at school and then combining all that information to decide on a treatment plan moving forward mm-hmm. um so i've had a, i think it takes a lot of different there's a lot of moving parts i think with dynamic assessment um but it includes the standard assessment and i think it's just it's important to to get to the root cause of what's going on tell us a little bit about the population of students that you serve? Yes, well, the beauty of schools is you get them all, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I definitely have um, a a very wide variety. Um, I have non-speaking preschoolers and I have non-speaking high schoolers. Um, And then I have general ed students. I have stutters. I have um, I have everything because that's what you get in public schools. Um, So yeah, I have about, I have four AAC users. I'm trying to get two or three more. Um, Mm -hmm. So I'm working on those now. But it's something that I talk about more often this year, I think, than I have Mm -hmm. in any other year is just the benefit of it. The benefit of AAC, even if for for students that you didn't consider, like, this is why I think it would be helpful for them. Um, Or even students who are speaking, this is why I still think we should, we should consider it. Um, Mm -hmm. So there's been a lot of like education at the school I'm in. It's kind of in a smaller town, um, but just a lot of educating about why I think this is going to be helpful for everybody involved. And also the company that I work for, we have an AAC specialist. So I'm able to call her in to back me up at any time, which has been great. Love her. Um, yeah, that's so. Great. Yeah, it, it's it's been wonderful. But you know, AAC stuff is also perceived very differently from actually family to family. Let's just start there, right? If you're not having the conversations with the families, you don't know what they don't know. You know what I'm saying? So in the schools, I think we often just don't see enough dialogue between therapists and families. I think as that's one of the things that has shocked me is like we are we're professionals in communicating. And I think that we don't always do a great job of communicating (laughs) with with our families, with our parents. I think that can be difficult. I think one, because I think that we forget what we know is not common knowledge. So I think that we don't always um, like break it down in the way that it needs to be, or yeah. just we don't we don't <laughs> we don't communicate in the way that it's able to be understood. And right. I think that can be intimidating for families. It can be frustrating. It can be confusing when we're just throwing all this information in words they don't know or never heard at them, and it's just too much for them to process. And that makes therapy scary that makes you intimidating um Mm -hmm. that makes it seem like you're above them and we're not on the same team Mm -hmm. so that's something that I like from the beginning I was taught you know like we I that's what I'm here to establish from the start like we are all here to work towards the same goal which is helping the child and I'm on your team to do that and we're going to do it together Mm -hmm. um so I think that communication piece is very important I think we all, like you said, we just, we have all the information and we just spew it out and, you know, everybody doesn't catch it in the same way. So I think that's something that's really important when you're starting to work with a family. And even just as you continue on, like, that's something I definitely reiterate all the time. Like we're on the same team, we're working towards the same goal. um, And I think being able to break down what your role is, as well as what the parent's role is, is something that I don't see often as well. Like Mm. I just did a talk with a private practice um and they were telling me like they're having so many so much 
difficulty with parents not being involved or like they'd go into the home for a session and the parent would just leave the room. And I think a lot of that starts with that, the parent education. Like I'm, I have your child for maybe 5% of the time and right. you're with them the other 90%. So I need you to know what I'm doing so that you can do it with them so that we can all see the progress. Like that's part of being on the team. So right. we're going to talk about the roles of this team um, from the beginning to get that buy-in. We were thinking about culture, right? And we all have a culture, and, but when a culture is different from yours and you're working with students whose culture is different from yours, what would you say are some things that we should think about? Yeah, I think the first thing for me is always awareness, like being aware of your own identity, being aware of your own privilege. And even just like you said, like you said, everybody has a culture and everybody doesn't feel that way, um, which is what happens when you're a part of a dominant culture because it, you you feel like you're the norm, you know, but you do have a culture. It might be white American culture, but it is a culture. Um, so I I think being aware of what that is, being aware of your own different identities, your intersectional identities, um, and then what privileges come from that. I think that's that's number one, because that's going to help you identify like how you show up in the world, how people might react to you um, or how you want to be perceived and what you might need to say at the start of something to change how you're perceived. Um, because, again, it's like if people just see how you look, you might be perceived a certain way or people see how you look know that you're educated, know that you probably have a good amount of money compared to, you know, in comparison. Um, like those are already three different things that one might make somebody else feel inferior when that is the opposite of what you want them to feel. You want them to feel empowered. Right. Um, I think the next one would be is kind of along the same lines as like identifying your implicit biases. Like that's like the next step of identifying your identity, your privileges. And then next would be what biases do I have or what areas of ignorance do I have? Which is not a bad thing. Ignorance just means like, you don't know something. There's, you know, there's a mm -hmm. lot of cultures I don't know. I don't know things about, which mm -hmm. is fine. Um, but like, what can I do to mitigate that? Like, what can I do to, to learn more about it before I'm in the room with this family? Um, or what can I get to know about this individual so that I'm not just grouping them all into this one thing I know about the culture? Right. Um, so I think, yeah, that would be number two. My third one, which is for me, is like, it's how I live life. I feel like I've always felt like you can learn something from anybody. I learn from my kids all the time. Like they tell me things I didn't know. I learned something like you can learn from anybody. You can learn from any conversation. So I think just being humble and being able to understand, like, you're not perfect. You might make a mistake. You might say the wrong thing. That's okay. Um, it's you know, like as long as you go in to establish this relationship and this connection and that you're on the same team, like I keep saying, um, you know, like everything else is going to be fine. Like you're not going to be canceled because you said the wrong thing or you're not going to, you know, like get fired mm -hmm. or making a mistake. As long as people right. know what your intentions are and your intention is to be culturally responsive or your intention is to get to know the, the family as an individual family, as well as getting to know their family culture, their broader culture. Um I think you'll be okay. So much about just listening, right? And yeah. wanting wanting to know, being open to know more. And most yeah. of it honestly can't really be taught in school because you're talking about individual cultures. Like when you're in a yeah. family 
and home base. It's like, what is this family dynamic? Exactly. What, what are your family contributing factors? Where are your pain points? That's, that's family to family, you know, yeah. but I think you're right too in saying that like, you know, if you say the wrong thing, like don't let a mistake or shame or anything prevent you from putting one step before another and saying, oh, that was the wrong word to say, but I'm still here to make a human connection. Yes, exactly. And I think one thing I see with that often is people like that have the all the right intentions that make a mistake and say the wrong thing. Um, this is something that I learned actually from the queer community. Like when you use the wrong name with somebody or use the wrong pronoun, just apologize, correct it and move on. Like, that's it. Just make it simple. I'm sorry I used that word. Uh, this is what I meant to say. And then continue on with the conversation. Mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of times when we make a mistake or some, this is something that happens in American culture a lot is when we make a mistake that we actually feel bad about, we make it about ourselves and how bad we feel instead uh -huh. of the person that we made the mistake against. Um, so instead mm -hmm. of, you know, like staying in that and just like staying in, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean that out. That was so wrong. I didn't mean to say that. Like, we don't need to do all that. Just apologize, yeah. make the correction and move forward. And that's how you're going to continue to to build on that relationship. Yeah. And I was working with these twin boys that were Vietnamese and the parents were both deaf. So they know Vietnamese sign language. Okay. Even ASL icons right. on eyes are, are not, not going to work. Gonna work. <laughs> yeah. so it was just like, there was so many pieces to deaf culture, to Vietnamese yeah. culture, mm -hmm. and then twins with autism. And I, I'm st still in the process of learning, obviously. And I have not mastered any of that. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And the next, and the next Vietnamese deaf family that I meet, I it will not be, be applied in that in that sense. Right. It's important to realize you never see the exact cultural dynamic again. We talk about being culturally responsive. For me, is just being responsive in in general. Like every every family, like you're saying, is different, and so I need to go in without any assumptions, like we talked about, without an agenda, without feeling like I'm an expert on this family because I'm not I don't they are the only experts on that on their family mm -hmm. um so I think it's so important to just like treat every situation as its own situation and sure there are things that you'll like see a pattern maybe or you yeah. might pick up and then one day you're like well this family didn't do that and then it's gonna throw everything off yeah. because every family is different and you learn so much like I've learned so much just talking yeah. to people from different places with different backgrounds and it just makes you a better person and makes you a better clinician mm -hmm. right that relationship just leads to better therapy right because exactly everybody cares and everybody's on board yeah. jordan in what ways would you like to see the field of speech pathology or aac or disability make changes to meet the needs of diverse populations yeah i think um one phrase it's a really old phrase i think it started I'm pretty sure it started with Black culture, but I've heard it, it with disability too. Um, nothing about us without us. So like we're mm. even in like these conversations, like we're talking about disabled people of color, but I I personally would like to hear from a disabled person of color. Like yeah. I want, if we ask them the same question, like, what do you think we need in this field for you? I'm sure mm -hmm. they would have, you know, a list of, a list of things that they wish right. they had or wish they could have accessed easier. Right. Um, so I think, 
for me, like the biggest thing is to listen to the people that we're trying to learn from. And, um, you know, I think it's, it's great to listen to the people that study it and the people that treat it. I think obviously we're going to, we're going to have a lot of information about it, but it's just like the families, like we're not going to be the experts. The people who are that identity are, are the only ones who will, who will right. be the expert. Um, yeah, I think even just including them more when we're talking about uh, making like programs for AAC devices or podcasts where we're talking about these things so they can share their own um, stories and what worked for them and what didn't. And I think social media has been such a big part of that because now um, people who are disabled or people who have these different experiences have a platform where they can share mm -hmm. and they can say, I even saw a video like recently of an adult autistic and he like had a list of things that he wished his parents did and I'm like this is going to make such a difference for parents who have autistic children that are like have this wish list of like I wish my parents did this for me as an autistic adult mm -hmm. like I just feel like social media like obviously has its pros and cons but it's really given a platform for people who didn't have one before so yeah. for me that's been big of being mm -hmm. able to listen to them in that way. I think another one that's really important, which is with everything, which like I've talked about since the beginning um, when I talked about undergrad, is the, the importance of representation. If there's just like more representation in the devices, people using the devices, a variety of people that look different, um, that just understand like this, that could be me. I can see myself using that or that could be helpful for me too. Um, whether that's the person that needs it or their caretaker, their family, they're not mm -hmm. going to, you know, if they don't see it, you can't be what you can't see. Um, so I think representation is a really big one. Being able to like have access to different dialects or even different voices that they can use that sounds like them or has an accent, the same accent that they have or would have. Um, mm -hmm. I think, you know, just like being able to implement all these different parts of someone's identity into what is their voice would be right. great. And and even like the therapy materials and the books you're reading with students while you're working on goals. All exactly. Of mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think you pointed out too, um, to encourage um, better representation amongst the professionals in the field, we have to diversify the, the service delivery model in which you can even get your degree in this. Right. Right. And I think there's a, there, another issue that we're seeing in the field is there's not enough people who want to be professors, which is why um, some of the cohort, cohorts are smaller or programs are smaller in general. And I think that could also change if we had a varied um, like way to do it. Like if there was more short term or part time programs, mm -hmm. there would probably be more people willing to be a professor part time yeah. instead of full-time like I just think we're we're doing ourselves a disservice in in this <laughs> the way that it's going in general and I mm -hmm. think that we could be doing so much better I just yeah I could see how what a benefit it would be to having your professor also in the field right and they're pulling exactly experiences that are currently happening in their practice yeah. because most professors are pretty far removed from actually doing therapy, which I think is, right. again, doing a disservice. You, like, mm -hmm. you can't answer questions in the same way. And it's also why research is so delayed from, like, research to actual implementation. There's right. such a delay. There's so mm -hmm. much time delayed there. And right. I think if we had more of those, like, part-time um, placements where people could 
be a professor and do therapy and do research and be giving this back to future SLPs, like we could see a huge difference in the field. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's always been a disconnect between what's being taught and what, what we're implementing because the people teaching it haven't been practicing in a long time. And mm -hmm. they, they know a lot of stuff. It's not that right. they don't know a lot of stuff, but they, they but, but you know, even Sarah and I, when we were in grad school, there was no classes on cultural responsiveness, right? Mm -hmm. So what are all the people in the field doing that are our age that never received any um, information about this, right? And and I guess that is why now there's two hours required mm -hmm. for on the topic, right? right? But it's just like, it's like we... We there's such a disconnect from what's happening, um, what's happening at the collegiate level and what's happening with boots on the ground. Yeah, no, definitely. And I can tell you what's happening with those pro professionals who did not receive the cultural responsiveness, those classes, they're causing a lot of harm. Like that's really that's really what it comes down to. I was harmed. I don't know a black SLP who was not harmed on their way to becoming an SLP. And then we don't know what they're doing to like clients of color or other cultures, but likely causing harm because that's that's what happens when you're unaware. And it's like you said, um, nobody got into this field to do that. Like obviously you didn't get into this field to, you know, cause harm for somebody or make them feel any type of way about themselves. But unfortunately it is like, that's the reality of what happens when you don't work against what you've been, you know, societally taught, what's been ingrained through society. Right. Um, and it's not like of no fault of your own, but you, you are the one that has to work against that. So you're not causing harm. Can right. you expand on that a little bit, Jordan? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we're all affected by the society that we live in, which is a predominantly white society. And we all have a role which, in, like, in the society that we are. And the way that it works, that's, which is unfortunate, but it's true, is white men are at the top, white women are underneath that, and then everything else is just, you know, lower and lower and lower. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the way that power and privilege works. But when we're like, when you are in or yeah, when you're surrounded by this power and privilege, it's hard for you to see that that's not the norm. It's hard for you to see that everybody doesn't have that same power and privilege. Um, and also another thing that happens is called symbolic annihilation, which is when you're seeing, you know, everybody that's in a, a place of importance, your doctors, the people on TV, the people that you uphold and respect, when they all look like you, and everybody that's important looks like you, you subconsciously are like to understand that the people who don't like, don't look like me are not as important. They are not supposed mm -hmm. to be in these important positions because you've never seen that. It doesn't mm -hmm. like, it, it doesn't make sense because your entire life, this is what you've seen. So like, this is, this is society that we live in. And it's not just white people. Like we all live in this society. Like we, I've, I've had to actively work against that. Um, like I said, I, I'd never seen a black SLP before and I, I didn't know it could be a thing. I didn't know we existed. Um, so I had to actively work against that because we're all getting the same influence. Mm -hmm. um, so just being able to understand that and then actively work against that because that would be an, an unconscious bias because you're not aware of it, you know? Right. If you If you have been harmed by this, what do you do now? Question. <laughs> um, I think... For me, I think harm can look different for everybody, you know, okay. like for me, um, 
my harm was in undergrad, like being told that I would not, I couldn't be an SLP, that I should drop out of the major, that mm-hmm. my hair was unprofessional, that the way I dressed was unprofessional, like all these different things. I was micromanaged in the clinic. They told mm-hmm. me I wouldn't get into grad school. I was sitting, I sat with my advisor. I had already taken the GRE, like my score was fine. It was good enough. I don't know what it was, <laughs> but it was good enough. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. And my, my GPA was great. And I'm, we go through a list of like 50 schools, 50 colleges, and I'm looking at the requirements. Like the list had the GRE requirement, the GPA requirement. I met all 50 of them. And she sat there and scrolled through the list with me and was like, yeah, none of these places are going to accept you. <laughs> I'm like so confused. I'm looking at the list with her. Like, what do you mean? You have you have my yeah. GRE score. You have yeah. my what. Like, what list are you they... looking at? Yeah. Right. I was so confused. And she was like, yeah, no, none of them are going to accept you. And then like was there was less than a minute there was no conversation after that and like it was over like she sent me out the door with a packet for a gap year to take a gap year because I wouldn't wow. get because in her mind I wouldn't get into grad school yeah there's there's a lot of experiences like that unfortunately mm. but I I think that for me that turned into like okay well the imposter syndrome like maybe I don't belong or maybe I do like have to do a little bit extra or like whatever that might look like um and just like having to actively intentionally tell myself that like I've earned to be here just right. just like or if not more than everybody mm-hmm. else for me that was my harm but I know that there are so many SLPs with way worse stories which is for me when I hear them I'm like man like I had it I know I had it bad because I know how it impacted me but mm-hmm. to hear other people's stories who had it worse like that's what hurts me because mm-hmm. I know how I felt so I can't imagine yeah. You know, right. how those people felt mm-hmm. so for me like I guess what do I do now is yeah. things like this like share my story so other people know that they're not alone which is why I'm on social media so people understand like you can make it through it and what yeah. other people are doing or saying is is false it's not okay you do belong here right. um yeah I think just being intentional about those things right yeah, right. we're so glad you did join us to share your story. <laughs> Tell us again how we can find you on Instagram and any other ways people can learn more. Yeah, definitely. Um, my Instagram, jrc underscore the SLP. Um, I am. I have a website, jrctheslp.com, where I sell different things. I also have a blog there. Um, so, you know, that's some more information. Um, yeah, all my social media is the same. I'm on Etsy too. Is there anything else that you were hoping we'd ask or that you you really wanted to share that we that we either un- unintentionally glossed over or didn't get to today? One thing that I feel like is very important that I want us as providers to know so that we can then, you know, do the right thing with it is that the families and the parents are the most valuable people in the room, like at all mm-hmm. times. Yeah. And I think that we as you know, as clinicians can get like frustrated sometimes with maybe the way that parents are or like not understanding why they do or don't do some things. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that it's just important that we remember that they're the most valuable person. They are the experts. They know their child best. They know what they need. Mm -hmm. And we have the knowledge and our knowledge is only to help them. It's not to change them. It's not to force them to do anything. It's to help them in any way that they need help in any way that we are able to do that. Um, So I think that's really important. I actually did a presentation for this other organization I wanted to shout out. It's The Color of Autism. 
They are um, a really cool organization. You should look them up. Um, they do a lot of different programs. They do a lot of help for families, especially families of color, obviously. Um, so check them out. Okay. Uh, I did a presentation for them. They did a, pres a parent presentation, which is great. They do it for free. And it was called You Are the Real MVP, so that they know they are the most important person. Um, but definitely just want to keep that in mind. That's That's got to be the backbone of all of it. Yeah, for sure. Thank you for having me. <laughs> really enjoyed talking with you. Yes, thank you for taking the time to talk to us. It was super helpful.